Hi guys, and welcome back to the High Vibe Alchemist podcast. My name is Tony, and I'm your host. If you are returning, welcome back. If you're new here, welcome in. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to keep in touch and hear more conversations like these. If you want to support this offering, please head on over to iTunes when you can and leave us a five-star review. It just helps people find the podcast and these offerings through the world of algorithms. So today in part two of this two-part episode, I'm going to be sharing a conversation with end-of-life doula Oceana Sawyer. So back in part one of this two-part episode, I discussed the definition of a doula and the generalization of their work, but also upgraded it to include more of the topics that are now appropriately being included in their breadth and depth of the offerings that they provide. So be sure to check back with the intro to part one and have a listen to that episode if you want to just have a base background on what doulas are and the work they provide. In the wake of the ongoing deaths from violent acts as a result of systemic racism and oppression, I've been struck by the idea of how we reclaim our lost community members. How, in addition to the traditional ways of reaction and response to these injustices, can we not forget the importance of our healing? The importance of not losing our humanity or the energy of our snatched community members to the martyrdom of expressed pain and anger. My second guest of this two-part episode is Oceana Sawyer. Oceana is a woman of color living in Northern California. An end-of-life doula, Oceana is practicing, supporting, and expanding the knowledge base and rituals around the end of life and empowered dying. We talk about her story to getting to this work, how she practices and sees her work, the need for demystifying and facing the reality of our fearful relationship with death, and the topics of death and dying, how discussion can and does lead to empowered living, and how reclaiming this integral part of living can help us build a narrative alongside demonstrative organization that helps us build an integrated ritual of processing grief and exalting our lost. A note of correction, Oceana mentions listening to a podcast recently called Into the Wild, and she meant For the Wild, which is a podcast by Ayana Young featuring a guest, Bronte Velez. It's a airing of the podcast that was actually originally aired back in 2018, and yet as of this very minute, it's still applicable in such an eloquent discussion of how we can process grief in the work of decolonization. How we can use ritual to decompose what Velez refers to as decolonization as a death. It's an amazing conversation, and I encourage you all to take a listen. It's episode 184. So with that, welcome into this conversation. Let's dive in. Hi, Oceana. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful. So I wanted to start by just getting you to tell me a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go into your path as to how you became a death doula or end-of-life doula. (laughs) It's funny how people toggle between the two terms. I I personally use end-of-life doula, um, except if I'm trying to make a particular point and then death doula sounds really cool that's right <laughs> a little darth vader <laughs> right anyway um yes who am i well i'm an end of life doula here in northern california and um i've been doing this work um officially for about a year and um unofficially for about seven and uh, i live in a a 50 plus year old intentional community, uh, which is full of um, baby boomers who Mm. are aging. So that's what we are up to. We are trying to figure out how to age in place pleasurably. And part of that includes the entire life cycle, which would be dying on the other end. So it was really actually about seven years ago when I witnessed my first death, which was my father. Um, He died in Atlanta, and I flew out there, and I was with him for five days as he left his body. And it was such a profound experience for me that when it was all over, I thought to myself, oh, this is a space I can occupy. Uh, This 
feels comfortable to me. It's sacred. It feels like a privilege. Um, this is a space I can occupy. And that was then. And then, you know, fast forward to uh, five years later, uh, one of the people I live with here in the community uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I had already been thinking about how are we going to age and live and die in this place that we have all created. I mean, it's such a shame to, at the end of your life, to have to go someplace else to die. It just didn't make any sense to me. And it had already happened once. And I thought, this is never going to happen again. So we took care of Connie at home. And again, I was with her when she died, um, the moments that she died. And I thought, oh, yes, I remember this. This is a place I can occupy. So um, it was uh, shortly after that that I started investigating it further, taking different trainings, and then sort of formalized my profession, formalized wow. it into a profession uh, last year. And um, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God, I know. a whole nother thing. Wow. Well, that sounds like a beautiful journey in itself. Um, my condolences on your father. And um, I think that that is something that I'm always talking to my audience about is is that moment of recognition when you kind of step into your intuition and you kind of figure out like this, like exactly as you described, this is a space I can occupy. Um, and I don't know about you, but for me, it's kind of almost re- physical and in, in a sense of like you you get this kind of tingling it's almost like a light bulb goes off so I'm not sure what that was like for you but I'm always talking to people about trying to to pinpoint that moment and recognize it and step into it so it sounds like you had a very um, personal and physical connection to that moment of intuition which I think is great um, but did you know much about doulaship before you got started or was it in that process of the journey from your father passing to where you are now that you kind of got more into that? Um, I like that word you use, doulaship. Yes. <laughs> I haven't heard it much before. Um, you know, when my father died seven years ago, there really wasn't this sort of burgeoning movement. And I was frankly at loose ends when he died and I thought oh this is something I can do but what is there to do I you know I couldn't find anything more than volunteering for hospice and um the threshold choir I found the threshold choir pretty quickly um when he died because that was one of the things I noticed about the dying process was how much the environment and music affected it. Like Mm. this was a complete intuitive hit that came through as I was sitting vigil with him. Like this environment has to change. The television has to go off. So all of that came intuitively. There wasn't any, I was not aware at that point of any books or there wasn't nearly as much out there then as there is now i mean the conversation around dying consciously dying deliberately taking control of your dying process that whole death positive movement that's fairly while it's been growing it has created it's gotten to a level of critical mass now that you can talk about it and people kind of have a vague understanding of what you're talking about. At least there's enough people in the conversation. Yeah, I would agree with that. You can have reality um, that this is, there is a, there are ways to die other than what has been congregated by the medical establishment. So to answer your question, there wasn't much then. And that's probably why I didn't really step into that role fully then. Um, I, made a life doing other things, which I'm very proud of and very happy I did. And it actually speaks to the work I do now. But um, yeah, I think that the the call to come into what I talked about formally 
or officially doula ship of that <laughs> work. That's great. Uh, came uh, after uh, Connie died. I just thought, yeah, now. And then there were things too. I could, you could find articles about how to do this. You know, you, right. could, you could Google death doula uh, or end of life and find programs. Even the AARP was now saying these are the top five end of life training programs. You know, really? And, oh, wow. I, and that's how I actually. I had already thought about, I was already considering one of the programs I did, the Conscious Dying Institute, which is a mm-hmm. spiritual, has a more spiritual basis to their doula ship. And I was already headed that direction. But then I also, in a kind of parallel, took another um, end of life doula training program through the University of Vermont, which was all online. And I found that through the AARP article, which was. That's amazing, though. Yeah, kind of funny. I mean, you know, and there were other people who were recommending it, you know, so I, I had done the due diligence, but. Right, yeah. right. Always necessary to do that due diligence. <laughs> um, but that's that sounds so interesting. I My mom actually is uh, was a nurse. She's retired now. And she actually worked specifically in geriatrics. So she was very intimate with this sort of um, end-of-life care and it's so interesting, and I love the fact that we've been developing this new avenue of exploring taking control of your own um, end-of-life experience because we would have conversations about her emotional bond and connections with the patients that she had, but a lot of their end-of-life stories were very much the same. It was like, they we're here on Wednesday, and Thursday they're gone, and you call their families, and their families come, and you know, it's just very clinical, um, more administrative than it was an emotional connection. Um, And then I can agree with you that even in my upbringing or any exposure I had to the ideas of end of life care, the alternative to being in a nursing home or a hospice facility was seen as this kind of um, hippie idea of like, oh, you want to die at home? Like, what does that mean? And like, <laughs> you know, like, like, what is the like the idea of this concept of quote unquote like the angel of death or the angel of mercy who's going to like help you die? You know, it it was it was very much in this kind of nobody does that. What are you talking about? Um, and then to come to you know full circle of this idea of doulas. I was first introduced to a concept, um, as most people probably are, through birthing doulas or caring for mothers as they're going through their journey into motherhood. Um, but I really wasn't even really familiar with this uh, other concept of and, and much needed, which was the end of life. And I think I was actually listening to an uh, probably a news hour. I was listening to some segment of that where they were talking about, which we'll get into later, the whole evolution of mourning and holding vigil in the crisis of COVID. So that's kind of where this entire thing spawned from. And I was like, oh my God, I want to explore this so much more. And I think it's so necessary. So I would agree with you 100%. We have had a little bit more of exposure to it as of late than there ever was before. But I think it's definitely a necessary and important um, arena to be in. So I'm glad that you made it there. But you mentioned that you had um, come from a different background, or at least a background that lent a little bit to what you're doing now. So if you want to tell us a little bit about what you felt like you were doing before that, uh, you know, impacted the work that you're doing now, you can share for sure. Oh, yeah. In the intervening years between my father's death and Connie's death, I um, started studying um, sensuality. Um, How do you live? a life fully embodied with all of your um, senses, with pleasure being the goal. And and it's like, I, I actually call myself a responsible hedonist. It's the pursuit of good or pleasure or fun as a way of life actually yields a fairly a good life, just for starters, but it's one that also contributes to the people around you because the responsible part of being a hedonist is that you cannot take pleasure in anything if the people around you are suffering. And in fact, we feel like in our community that if you're having a good time other people and, uh, and you're making sure other people are having a good time, 
well, that is a good and worthy pursuit in whatever you're going to be doing. And in fact, what that leads to is love, a, a real yeah. aspect of love. Like you're actually taking care of people. You're actually considering them and concerned about them. So part of that perspective also includes every aspect of life, including sexuality. And what I learned in the process of training to teach other people about their sexuality is that there is a, a an infinite supply of life force energy available to all of us. And there are multiple ways to tap into that. I just happen to have done a lot of research on tapping into it through the body, through sexuality. And that infinite pool of life force energy is exactly the thing that you are exiting when you are dying. And that is not a small thing to recognize. Because when you are in the process of dying, disconnecting yourself from that physical essence of life force brings you or puts you in a place where you're more open to a more disembodied pool of life force. You know what I'm saying? It's like, just because you have left your body doesn't mean that your consciousness still doesn't exist. And there's lots of um, books and theory out there about that, all kinds of religious traditions that talk about that. Mm -hmm. To exit with the same energy or connected to the same energy with which you sort of came into the world, that's what I have found in my practice of being a doula that's available because I have studied the life force energy that's actually in a body that you can tap into um, when you're having a, a a pleasurable experience. Mm, that's awesome. And I, I think that, that I'm so glad I asked you to go further into that because I think proves this perfect point of oftentimes the things that we do the majority of our lives that we feel like are so normal and are so, oh, that well, this is just what I do as a career. Um, when you step into or you pivot into something that you feel is more of your calling, usually all of the experiences that you've had before line up in some way directly contributing to you stepping into that that place and that center of calling so i think it was like a beautiful connection i'm so glad that i asked that um let's see i wanted to touch back a little bit on the idea and the concept of sensuality and touch that i am actually a, a licensed uh, esthetician so i do a lot of work with connecting with my hands and um, even in my other work with with uh, clients or other healers that I work with, there's this constant talk about in our society that deprivation of sensory feeling and connection, um, just the basic idea of human touch and that, that we're so deprived of that and how a lot of times, you know, we'll joke and say when we're interacting with someone who is manifesting a negative resonance or vibration or they're angry about something and people will turn and be like oh my god you just need a hug and <laughs> you know it, it is so true in that sense where it's like you even just like in hugging someone you can see how first the resistance and the reaction of like oh no don't touch me you're entering my physical space but then the release that happens after that and the kind of the surrender to the feeling of, oh my God, this is actually what I'm missing. And so I, I heard a lot of that kind of story in exactly what you're saying about exploring sensuality and making sure that the pleasure is reciprocated so that everyone's enjoying it. But it also comes from this place of when you take care of yourself, you can take care of others. So if you are enjoying something and the other person is enjoying something, it's kind of like this loop of exactly what you're talking about, this energy that is really the essence of love, right? And what we're all trying to get into. So I love that concept. That's absolutely amazing. That's beautifully said. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, let's definitely jump into, because as I mentioned, this kind of stemmed from the catalyst of the whole situation that we're in right now. Mm. So um, I think that Happy. the idea, right, of end of life, we have become intimately involved with in a much more communal level because it's just in our um, presence every day, just from COVID. Um, so in your opinion or in your experience with dealing with end of life, um, how, I mean, I know in the ways it's definitely going to shift us, but how have you seen how your process and your work is impacted by this? How do you think it will be in the future? Mm. 
Oh, well, let's see. There's a couple of things, right? There's the whole pandemic and people dying in isolation, dying alone. And then there's then the recent events um, around violent death. So let's just start the pandemic, people dying alone. And, you know, so um, it's hard. You know, it's really hard because many death care collectives um, have this notion that no one dies alone. I mean, that's the whole, that's their whole battle cry, if you will, around the work that they do. Um, community um, death care collectives are, have done so much work in making sure that people who don't have access to medical care or hospice are being cared for in their homes. So that was pre-pandemic. And now what we have are lots of people, regardless of your uh, socioeconomic situation, are dying alone. It's how you're going to die now, pretty much. Um, There are obviously exceptions, but by and large, people are going to be dying alone. And so what I have been impressed by is the ingenuity of the human spirit to connect, um, no matter what. And so I had a client um, early in the pandemic whose mother died a thousand miles away in her Mm. nursing home, not of COVID, but of her natural end of life process. Um, Her natural life ended. And she was beside herself about how, how mm-hmm. is this that I am not there? So what we did was we talked through some ways that she could be there. And, you know, she was fortunate in that her mother was being cared for by a thoughtful staff of folks in the home where she was at. And they were present to have the phone with um, her mother. So she was able to talk with her mother all the way up until the end. Um, mm. And just because the staff, there was a staff person there who could hold the phone or leave the phone. And because, you know, one of the things about dying is that as you are getting into active dying, you're losing your connection to the sensory world, you know, the physical sensory world. And you kind of spend a lot more time in some other out-of-body realm. So the fact that someone is not necessarily physically present is in a way mitigated by what actually happens when a body dies. The last sense to go when you die is your sense of hearing. So having a phone being present via the phone is actually about as close as you would get anyway. Now, of course, when someone's dying, everyone, the person dying and the, the people around are have a physical connection. I mean, that cannot be denied. It's unseen. And it can't be denied. But still, if the last sense to go is the sense of hearing and you can still be connected via the phone, then that is actually far better than um, having no contact at all. Right. Like we're, we're talking about the idea of um, still being, being able to share a space, even though it's not a physical space. Exactly. And I have to say, at least one of the silver linings for all of this is We've understood, I think, when you mentioned before, this idea of the ingenuity and the resilience that humanity has, because we took the circumstances and immediately started to utilize the tools that we had in front of us. So that was phones and technology and video chats and group chats on online. Um, so in a sense, we're also lucky that we live in a time where that's even available to us because if this was 50 or 60 years ago, like there, you wouldn't, you would be able to get on the phone maybe, but not in that the same way of like the visual, the virtual, the instant kind of connections that we have. Um, but it's also great to understand that understanding that the set, the hearing is the last sense that you're kind of losing. There's two spaces where you can connect in the audio sense, but then also in kind of the energetic space. So that's really nice. Oh yeah. Thank you. And I was just going to hit that energetic space because the other piece of what we did for her mother's vigil was, uh, she set up, I had her set up her own altar in her home for her mother. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's sort of, again, when you get to the end of your life, you're sort of in your body and not in your body, and you're mostly not in your body. 
So that opportunity to connect in a different level is completely available and has nothing to do with the physical space. So she and her family created an altar and a whole ritual around her mother's dying in their home a thousand miles away, which for them felt like as good as you could possibly get, possibly even better because they were able to control Mm -hmm. the space. They could create beautiful altar and songs and singing and chants and prayers amongst themselves, which they probably could not have done in the nursing home. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's actually really great to know. I mean, I think that's it's actually a way for people to take more control, exactly what you're saying, more control over that whole process and and build a personal, uh, customizable feeling to the whole journey. So I think that idea of building an altar in that space. I mean, I have an altar in my own home and it's, you know, something that I always encourage people to do because your, the energies are called to it and your energy is always a part of it. Um, so I love that idea. How about um, any other virtual kind of ways you, you've been seeing gathering taking place? Because I think what struck me the most is just as we're talking that that concept of people dying in isolation and then family members not being able to be there, but even if you are in the same area, you know, you're not allowed to gather really with more than five people. So uh, I think the idea of harnessing and understanding this concept of virtual visual and vigil and holding space separately, but together is a really big concept. So outside of the altar that you mentioned, are there any other ways or services that you feel like you've been imploring more than late? Um, yeah, Zoom. <laughs> I mean, is yeah, right? the best friend now? Well, yes, we're all yes. Living Zoom has gone Zoom through the roof. You know? <laughs> oh, look, now I'll go to this room and I'll go to that room. Um, yeah, no, um, my, um, my mother died in November and we just had mm. a virtual memorial for her in May, six months after she died. And I, and it was great. I got to say, because we the people who showed up probably would not have showed up mm-hmm. had she had I had a memorial, physical memorial in here person. In the area, you know, and right. we got together. The environment had some ritual to it, but it was also a little bit informal. So we just mm-hmm. all sat around talking story for like two hours. It was it was so intimate and so yeah. rich and. We laughed, we cried, and we showed pictures. You know, I um, had created a Facebook page, memorial page mm-hmm. for her. So there were all kinds of pictures and people were writing things. And so we brought that into our Zoom call. Everybody had it up on their computers and we could all see it and talk about it. So it was, um, you know, again, there are so many vehicles and platforms available to people to gather are safe you right. know there's the zooms platform and then the facetime i'm sorry the facebook page um live platform and of course there's facetime which i accidentally said right so yeah i just um i i feel like because human beings are going to connect and they will find a way i i feel like the um the platforms that have been made available to us have been well utilized actually and creatively. I want to just take a little tangent here and go back to something you said, which I think applies to this also, which is that that desire for human beings to connect and uh, also at the same time a way to forward the conversation about dying consciously, dying how you want to die. And what you said earlier was about how foreign this conversation is to so many people well that's also part of my work i am simultaneously maybe even more so at this point involved in expanding the conversation around death um, into the larger society by holding virtual living funeral ceremonies and this is a way for people who were sort of skeptical skeptical about, oh, 
I don't know, all this death stuff. And I, I, I don't even want to talk about dying because, you know, people are afraid if they talk about their death that it might happen tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, like, like right. talking about sex is going to make you pregnant. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, you can talk about death. It's very safe. Um, it is going to happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't speed you along the path to your own death. Although I will acknowledge there are some cultures who really do feel that and believe that. that. So that's not to be taken lightly or brushed over. But in general, in this whole conversation about becoming familiar with your whole life, which includes the Mm -hmm. end of your life, is what we look at in the living funeral ceremony, which is a great space Mm -hmm. for people to actually confront through a guided meditation. It's your imagination. But but still, you get an opportunity to confront your own dying process. And what is it going to be like, possibly, when you are dead? What does that space look like? And since, we, since nobody really knows what happens after you die, uh, we don't have anybody coming back and from the other side channeling. Although there's been a lot of near-death experiences and we have. A lot of that yes, anecdotal data, which actually points to the fact that it's not a bad space to go to. Since we don't know, why not take your best guess, use your imagination, mm-hmm. and literally create it the way you want it? So that's what mm-hmm. the living funeral um, experience gives people an opportunity to do, just to become familiar with it. Ugh. That's amazing. That's that's totally cool. I cannot wait for more people to explore that. Going back to what you were mentioning earlier about uh, the virtual space and creating this Facebook page where you were sharing images and stuff of your mother, I actually think that that concept of that virtual space gives lends more to what a true essence of a memorial should be. It's you know less about the who shows up how they look and and what they're saying, but more about the energy of being there and what you're sharing and that oratory history that's being shared amongst the people who are involved. And that is actually the memory of that person that you're honoring. So I love that that the virtual space has actually gotten us closer to what we traditionally would hold as, as a vigil or a memorial for a person who's moved on and transitioned. Um, so I wanted to just highlight that before we, you know, I, I really agree with you. I was thinking earlier in this conversation, I think even after the pandemic, there's, there's still going to mm-hmm. be that, you know, I think yeah, that is I would agree. real now and there'll be both going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would totally agree. So in our pre-chat to this or our email, I definitely wanted to mention our other um, crisis that we're in face with. I mean, we're always in this crisis, but we've had three really violent deaths publicly in the in the past what week and a half. Um, when we want to talk about end of life that comes by violent means, and so I wanted to touch base a little bit about how you think as a community, because we're now talking about we're seeing as of this minute the protests that are happening in Minneapolis and um, Louisville, and People in our own communities are gathering. They're they're doing it in in reaction. They're doing it in ways that are not adhering to social distances. So they're exposing themselves to different ailments. But it is just the go to form of expression that we have been known to utilize in moments of anger or frustration, or if we want to demonstrate. But what are ways that you think, um, I mean, in addition to what we've been speaking to, we can gather to grieve for communities, uh, community members that have been lost, but also how we can kind of, I guess, speak to what we're feeling inside in terms of taking that protest where we're not engaging in where we might, you know, get somebody sick as opposed to trying to really get a message across that we've been trying to for forever. Oh, goodness. I know oh, it's, a big it's one. so hard. Yeah. Well, let's see. There's a couple things. There's the there's the social and the political, and then there's the 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 dying, and then the grief. So um, mm-hmm. the social and political, I don't have much to say about that, other than what has 
so many people have so eloquently been saying. Have been saying. But I will say that yeah. I do think that I, heard, I was listening to a podcast, Into the Wild, spoke so eloquently about, you know, the the system of oppression, white supremacy, has they have a way to respond to these incidents. Um, they're very organized. They know exactly how to harm, exactly how to destroy us, exactly how to mm-hmm. keep us down. These are all well-honed practices. And our response to these practices tends to be like, whoa, what the, you know? <laughs> and the, the suggestion was that perhaps our response to these incidents could be more well thought out so that Mm -hmm. we could take these moments and actually shift the conversation instead of just being in response to what happens. We could actually have already in place mechanisms to effectively shift the conversation. And when she said that, one of the things that occurred to me was, as a doula, was like, yes, we should already know how we're going to carry that spirit out of their body and into the next realm with the ancestors. That should be part of what, how, uh, part of our response when a violent death happens is to actually notice, pay attention to the person who has been, who has been harmed, the, the actual yeah. person. Because, you know, so very quickly for us, it becomes very political and social and we're going to march. But Mm -hmm. what about that person who left their body in that tragic, violent way? How do you provide a good death for that person? Because, you know, in many traditions, the Buddhist tradition I'm thinking of in particular, and there are many traditions where it takes a body a few days to actually exit mm-hmm. um, and move mm-hmm. on to the next realm. We could be, as doulas, we could be shepherding that spirit from the moment we hear thoughtfully, carefully, onto the next realm. And in that way, we did that communally as we do. Then um, that also could be a level of healing uh, uh, um a platform for inspiration and action that would be even more thoughtful than the incredible inspired acts that are happening now. You know, just another way to respond to what's happening and not to denigrate anything that's already happening, but just another way that could be part of actually a larger shift in the collective consciousness around how we handle Black lives the lives of people of color. Right. Because it it does seem like the current, the current system or the current response is one that is triggered exactly as you're saying to be a reactionary one. It's like when someone is doing something just to get a reaction or to rile you in a way. And I think that that concept of shifting the focus to honoring those that we have lost and helping them transition is something that ancestrally we are akin to like that is what we that is who we are um and all communities do that in terms of helping to transition their dead on but it would be a way of for us to really take ownership and of that member bringing them back into the community as opposed to exactly as you're saying like in addition to using them as a political platform um because they automatically just become that because of the, the society that we're in and the social implications but instead of doing that or in addition to doing that making sure that we're reclaiming that soul as part of our communities yeah i want to make sure that we that i'm clear i don't mean instead of i mean in addition to which you correctly said yeah Yeah, i um yeah and in fact um i feel like you know at the crux of this whole thing is our humanity and what correct better way to restore a sense of humanity for ourselves and other people you know looking at us looking at us as other you know not human mm-hmm. um, but 
what better way to restore that sense of humanity on so many levels than to actually take care of the dead, to grieve mm. actively, publicly, um, deliberately. So yes, I mean, part of my response, I'm looking at creating actually, wait for it, a virtual, virtual <laughs> grief ceremony uh, where we will call all the ancestors, all the people who have crossed over, all the people who have left us what we've lost, and drum them, move them, sing them, celebrate them into this next realm, and heal the wounds that we have experienced as a result of their sudden and violent loss. So that's mm, coming. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and it speaks to this, you know, there's been a lot of talk, I mean, in the past, in the, the, the sphere of energetic work, but especially now, um, you know, it's usually you're hearing it in terms of connection to the earth and like the earth's resonance and getting people to do group and mass meditations to raise the, the vibration of the energy around the earth. And so this is, I think, the perfect answer to what we're speaking of, because I think the more that we collectively, the more that we collect together or come together as a community, even in this virtual space, and especially with this virtual space, is the more that we'll be able to get more people in terms of that mass meditation, that mass vibration, collective energy brought together. And I think it's a beautiful way of honoring our ancestors and our community. So I am all for that. I can't wait. So you, you've got to tell us more. So how can people find you? Like, what are, are you mostly on Instagram? Do you have your, your website, I think? Or what's the best way for people um, to find Certainly my website, OceanaEndOfLifeDoula.com. And then, as you probably noticed, I'm really active on Instagram. I'm there every day. Yeah, it's a beautiful Instagram page. Day. There's so much great thought and communication happening on Instagram in, in this realm of death and dying that I, I can hardly mm -hmm. stay away. I think I saw on your page that you have... Um, I yes. think it's called the Death yes. Cafe. Yeah, yes, so tell us a little bit about the, that. The other thing I'm doing, in addition to the virtual living and funeral ceremonies, is I'm hosting Death Cafes twice a month. And this is a very informal mm -hmm. space um, where people at all levels of interest or familiarity with death and dying can just come together and have a conversation over snacks and beverages <laughs> of your choice. You know, this the Death mm, Cafe was started by a British fellow. You know, the first one was in East London. So okay. that whole thing was about, okay. you know, let's talk death over um, tea and cake. You know, this is what British people do. The rest of us who are not British are having hay or tea with some crackers and cheese, you know, in our own homes. And just talking, a free form conversation about death, just whatever is up for people in the room. And the very first one I did was so cool because a couple of the participants had never thought they would be in this kind of a space talking about death. Like, okay, right, Oceana, I heard about your living funeral ceremonies. I'm not going there. There's no way I'm dying. But I, I, I can go to this death cafe. That sounds like <laughs> something I could actually do. Uh, they came and just loved it. Because, you know, also there were people who were, you know, very well steeped in the death trade. And so this conversation, questions and these answers and these, well, what about this? And what about that? Well, I had this experience with this. All of these conversations occurred in this 90-minute space such that the people who had never thought that they could do that were like, oh, I got to come back. This was too much fun. That's because, amazing. you know, there's laughter, there's ahas, there's like people crying, tearing up about someone they just lost. It's just, it's such a rich experience and it's free. So what the hell? Yeah. I mean, I love that. I mean, I myself am doing a lot of free offerings. I love that people in the digital community and virtual space are doing so many free offerings because I think we're definitely entering this time period of information and communication of ideas and the internet and the virtual space is the way for us to connect that on a global scale um, because I remember speaking to one of my other friends who 
was in a virtual, I think she was in a virtual workshop, but basically there was someone from Brazil who was in the workshop that she was doing here that she thought would be just like local New Yorkers doing things. And it is already showing this concept of how we can leap into this idea of let's get back to the connectivity of understanding our humanity, right? That we spoke about earlier, that no matter where you are in the world or who you are, there's going to be someone whose story connects with yours and can can learn something, but also heal from your story or sharing your story or their story and vice versa. So I love that we are are seeing so much more of this pop up because I think that's a direct correlation I of the time period agree. that we're in. Yeah, I said it better. Um, I just, I love right? this space. Yeah, me too. I, I, I would have to say the same. Um, so is there anything else we missed? Anything else you think that you, you felt was important we should touch base on before we no, wrap up? No, girl, I gotta say, we yeah, I think we got it. this conversation that I did not expect to go to. Yeah, really great. That's always I, what I want. I crystallized <laughs> my thinking in some key areas. I'm so excited. Thank you. Good, good. No, thank you so much. And that's exactly how I want it. That's how I treat the podcast. That's how I treat these conversations. I want them to be organic because I have always found that in conversations along my own journey, you just flow into things that you are like, wow, I was not expecting to go there. But exactly as we said, I'm so happy I'm here because I think intentionally we end up exactly where we're meant to be. So um, I don't take any greeting or any, you know, situational circumstance mm-hmm. by chance. I think everything has mm-hmm. its own meaning if we want to find it. And so Absolutely. I think we did that in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you so much. You. Yes, talk bye to you again bye. soon for sure. Thank you so much again, Oceana. What a powerful conversation. Again, we see the narrative of how our paths leave breadcrumbs and clues, even downright physical manifestations, to pulling out our inner calling. But we also see the importance of claiming our self-agency when it comes to the end of life and the medicine we should harvest from death and grief. After our conversation, I went and listened to the podcast episode of For the Wild, and it was just so beautiful. Oceana and I spoke so much about ritual and creating your own rituals, claiming your ability to shape them in your own energetic space. Many have violently been severed from their ancestral history of ritual, rituals surrounding healing, celebration, birth, death, and grief. In the wake of the pandemic, rituals amongst all cultures have been suspended. So how do we engage with death and the dying? How do we hold vigil, share memory, and help the transition of loved ones as they leave this earthly plane? And in a very top-level discussion, we discussed our thoughts on how, in addition to this new context of facing grief and mourning, how do we integrate more community healing, the preservation of our communal humanity and collective memorial when we are experiencing death by violence? I want to be clear that we both provide our thoughts on how it's important to explore and implore these concepts in addition to, not instead of, our present ways of organizing. Bronte Velez in For the Wild speaks so profoundly and further in depth on areas surrounding these questions and concerns. The episode starts out with a quote from Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, paraphrased here as a response to a question, the question of how to better organize demonstrations of protests in the context of multiracial organization. She says, paraphrased again, If we're going to change the way that we organize, we have to face the fact that the framework of multiracial organization, as it is currently, allows us not to take responsibility for the ways we also perpetuate the system. Go to the episode and listen to the response, but Velez proceeds to talk about some of the very topics Oceana and I have within this offering. The idea of ritual and the lack of rituals in grief and death. The fact that decolonization in itself is a death and we should apply the process of staged grief to it. How important protecting and connecting to our humanity is. How our connection to our bodies and the earth can facilitate our healing. How word, language, communication informs change and healing. And how powerful language and speaking sound is energetic manifestation. One of the ideas that really resonated with me was Velez sharing the topics explored by other writers and activists that I know to be true. 
The fact of disaster capitalist and the system of oppression being expressions of certain groups finding opportunity in violence, grief, and despair. The system, a trained modus operandi of white supremacy, that is a practice and an intention machine that we on the other side need to keep evolving and building our own response without perpetuating that system. It is, for example, the examination of the cycle of how when someone is murdered as a result of the system of racial oppression, reaction ensues as it is the right of those expressing despair, grief, and anger. But that leads to the injection of these existing built systems of white supremacy response, injecting of anarchists to encourage violence, market news reports to skew an image of savagery and criminality, which leads to further systemic oppression through the sanctioned use of military force and incarceration through arrested protesters deemed necessary for the quote-unquote safety of the larger community based on a narrative shaped by the oppressor. So there's a need to explore ways to respond that address, as Adrian Garza denotes, the responsibility we hold for not perpetuating that system. So many of the things Oceana and I talked about in our conversation is within the conversation with Bronte Velez, and so many other conversations, which lets me know how powerful group energetics is and how necessary collective healing is. Go listen, share this and that conversation with someone else, send me conversations or stories that you think echo this for further learning and resources. I will share them all through our community newsletter. Subscribe via my website to receive them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you found it helpful. Please subscribe if you would like to hear more conversations like this and give us a five-star review on iTunes if you want to support this offering. Bye for now.